I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello, my friends, and thanks for joining me today. This is the Once Upon a Gene podcast, and I am your host, Effie Parks. Get ready for my next guest. I met her in person a few months ago when Mike Gralia introduced us, and she schooled me once, and today she's schooling me again. And I hope it continues because she's so smart, and she's so busy, and she's one to watch. She's the mother of three beautiful daughters, one of which was diagnosed with a rare disease called FOXG1. And shortly after her daughter's diagnosis, she got to work and she co-founded the Fox G1 Research Foundation. She's dedicated to leading their research strategy to find a cure for every child in the world who has Fox G1 syndrome. But we aren't going to be discussing that diagnosis today. We're going to be discussing her work as the director of the Rare and Neurological Disease Division for Citizen. It's a technology company that enables fast and seamless access to patient data. In our chat today, you're going to learn about the most innovative medical record platform, this database of computational data they're creating will be accessible and open to all patients, parents, caregivers, clinicians, academics, biopharma, researchers. Their goal is to eliminate the slow, manual, and expensive processes that's currently used to collect data. They're going to be using the best technology to be quick, cost-effective, and more accurate when it comes to developing research. Get ready because it's time to learn. Please enjoy my conversation with Nasha Fitter. Hello, Nasha. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you again. Rare Dad Crusader, Mike Gralia, introduced us a few months ago, so I'm excited to actually chat with you on the podcast today. Yeah, love Mike. Yeah, he's the man, for real. He's the man. <laughs> <laughs> so can you please give us a little background about you and your family and your entrance into the rare disease community? Yes, absolutely. Like so many people, it's when it happens to you that your whole life changes. So many people know my story. I have three children. My youngest daughter, Amara, was diagnosed with FOXG1 syndrome when she was nine months old. And that was right after she started having seizures. And so before that, I had a whole other life um, working in education technology. But when this happened to Amara, my focus really became her and figuring out what can I do to drive scientific research forward. So started the Fox G1 Research Foundation with a group of other parents, and that really took me on my journey. And along this journey, I came in contact with a company called Citizen that was, you know, and we can dive more into it, um, just a really amazing platform. And I felt was going to solve a need that I was seeing myself having within the Fox G1 community. So that's really, you know, how I became now completely immersed in this new world of rare disease research, which is really rewarding, actually. And um, I've met some spectacular people and my life is different. Yeah, yeah, it definitely <laughs> takes a sharp turn. And I'm always so delighted when I find out there's, you know, I don't want you in my club. None of us want to be in the club, but I'm so excited when there's parents like you who are in it, who have maybe the right credentials to help get things started that maybe some of us others can't at the time. So 
Thank you. Very cool. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Citizen and the position you hold there? Yeah. So Citizen is a really interesting company. Um, it's a platform that is patient mediated. And so as patients, it's an ability for you to go. A citizen in the United States goes and collects all of your medical documents and you own them. They digitize them and put them on a portal for you so you can send them out for second opinions as well as all your images. And then the real crux of Citizen, though, is their machine learning and AI technology that they've spent the last few years investing in to read unstructured medical documents and abstract information from them. And now this information in the aggregate can be used by academic researchers to further their research and understand disease progression and by biopharma companies that are looking for natural history studies. Additionally, Citizen is working on an entire clinical trial matching where when you, um, you know, you, we can actually match patients to the trials that they could be a part of. So if I even look at Amara, she suffers from dystonia, for example, and I found out even at Stanford, there were three movement disorder clinical trials that she could have been a part of. I didn't even know about them. So there's a lot of trials that are happening even now as we're all looking for that perfect cure for our children that our kids could participate in and the, the drugs could be better than what we're currently giving them. And so that's a, a big part of Citizen as well. Yeah, that's amazing to collect patients to put them in clinical trials because a lot of us don't know they exist. And quite frankly, I'm not sure if the people holding them know how to even find those patients that aren't just like clawing down their door. Yeah, that's another problem. Most clinical trials, I mean, it's shocking, um, go like half full. So tell us how exactly you get started. If I'm Ford's mom and I want to help digitize his medical records, do I have to do that before he turns a certain age? How can I as a parent take someone else's medical records and do this for them? No, you um, you do it at any age for your child. And the way Citizen works is, you know, we're, we're not the platform if you just have a cholesterol problem, for example, right? We're focused on serious illnesses. And the company was started by Anil Sethi, who is a longtime healthcare entrepreneur. And he really started this company after his little sister, Tanya, was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. And it was in that journey of trying to save her life that he realized what kind of a disaster the you know the health med tech industry was in, um, in his inability to get her records on time, to find clinical trials, to get her the right second opinions, etc. And so he started the company first and foremost focused on oncology and breast cancer. And so if you're a breast cancer patient, you can go to Citizen right now and sign up and can go through the process. For other disorders, what we're doing is we're working with advocacy groups. And we need to build out what we call the ontology, which is really looking at the framework for a disease. So in the rare disease neurological space, for example, we have started working on Rett syndrome and we've, we've partnered with the Rett syndrome research trust. We've also started working on uh, mitochondrial diseases and we've partnered with the United uh, Mitochondrial Disease Foundation. So that's really how we go about this process as we first engage with the advocacy group. We get to understand the disease. We talk to clinicians that the advocacy group puts us in contact with. And then we invite patients through the advocacy group to join the platform. Wow, that's amazing. So I don't know if you know this, but is this sort of similar to what attorneys use like in Westlaw, where they can just go in and type a couple keywords and it's going to grab all of this information from maybe everybody's data and connect you to different patients? 
Yes, kind of. So, I mean, I get really excited about it as someone who runs an advocacy group too, right? Yeah. Like I'm excited about going and typing in um, seizures, right? Even something so basic like tonic-clonic seizures and seeing how many of our kids actually have these types of seizures. What medications are they using? And out of the kids using specific medications, which medications are the most successful? I mean, for me, day-to-day -day as a parent even, that is going to help me make decisions for my child. And it's interesting because we have have all of this data. I mean, right now, you know, we have Facebook groups and what parents do is they go on the Facebook group and they say, hey, anyone else having tonic-clonic seizures? What medications are you using? And then other parents chime in. But that's not really a uh, you know, an informed kind of analytical way to, to do it. We have all the information within our community. Can we pull it together to help each other make the best decisions? So you're absolutely right. Ooh, that's cool. Yeah. And have all the information there that's more accessible, but also more organized and not so much in the Dr. Google form and the Facebook form where you're you have to really sift through a lot of stuff to get what you need or maybe to message the correct person. Exactly. Yeah. You never know. So I go in, I fill out my stuff for Ford. You guys go and you collect all of the data from everywhere he's been. What do you need me to do as a parent? Do you need me to tell you every hospital I've ever went to? Or is there a magical like medical record number and you guys can just go and fetch everything? Yeah. You know, that's exactly what we're working on. So right now you go in and you tell us who your child is, um, you upload a copy of their birth certificate, and we ask for a photocopy basically, or just you take a snap a picture of your driver's license, and that's really for the hospitals to confirm that you are in fact Ford's mother, and Ford is your child. That's really important from a, a safety reason. So we ask for that information, and right now we just ask, you know, what's the main hospital that you go to? Most of our children have one main neurologist that they're seeing, and then we probably have a handful of other specialists that we might be going to. Um, so we ask that that and we act, we are working on a way that based on that information we can figure out everywhere else that you have been seen that Ford has been seen and we can go and approach all of those doctors and hospitals without you typing in each one or choosing each one. That's a work in progress right now. And if we, we can't find the, the hospital that Ford's been seen at, then we would ask for you to go and let us know what are the different institutions. But it's basically an easy drop down. So it's not like you're typing in and figuring out the address and their phone numbers. You know, we can do all of that for you. So is this going to be accessible to not only parents sharing all this information, but are doctors and geneticists and scientists going to be able to go into this program and do their own search as well? Yeah, that's the exciting part is the platform is basically free for um, academic researchers and clinicians. Academic researchers and clinicians are the most excited about this platform because they themselves don't have accessible information about everyone in a rare disease community. I mean, my neurologist has only seen three other FOXG1 patients in her whole life. I mean, she'd love more data on what are other FOXG1 patients going through. So with this platform, she will be able to access that data and I can share um, you know, Amara's information with her very seamlessly. Yeah. I know just a few months ago when Ford was seen in Salt Lake City and had a lung film, I needed it here for my pulmonologist. And I had to go through so many hoops just to get this CD mailed to me and then hand delivered to my pulmonologist here. It was a huge pain. Totally. And it needs to be done faster because, you know, Ford needed like a machine to help him get mucus out. Like it wasn't it was time sensitive. Exactly. And it happened in like two weeks. 
No, you're, you're totally right. I mean, it's only when you go and try to get your own or your child's medical records that you realize like, wow, it's really hard to get my own records. Um, so we use the HIPAA right of access. And actually what many patients don't realize is your medical records are your right to receive. And you actually have a right to dictate how you want those records received. So if you would like those medical records emailed to you, right? Even unsecurely, the hospital has to comply by your wish, and that doesn't happen. So one of the things that we did at Citizen early on is create the patient record scorecard. But if you just go to citizen.com backslash scorecards, you'll see it. Um, We actually have created a scorecard where we rate institutions across the United States on how well they comply with HIPAA. It's really neat. So, you know, do do you send patients their records within 30 days? That's what's legally required, right? Do you send it in the form and format that they have also stated that they require, which is electronically. So we actually started ranking all these hospitals and then we created a five-star category, which is you've gone above and beyond. So even though you have 30 days, you've actually sent the patients their records in five days and you haven't charged them. So things like that. Wow. And yeah, it's it's a it's a really cool thing. And we've seen institutions because of the scorecard literally go from a one to a five star. And, I, and I'm talking about really big institutions. That's amazing. You're going to be more inclined to be a patient there, right? When they care about you as a patient. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. I think we all have kind of a misconception about what HIPAA is. I actually recently Googled it and I was kind of blown away that I didn't know what it really meant because I I think all of us just think privacy, privacy, put the fence around it and that's what it means. But yeah, even for me, I asked for that stuff. Can it just be emailed? And she was like, no, we don't communicate that way. And it's funny how much we don't know about it. Yeah, you didn't even know you could go back to her and say, well, actually, as per HIPAA, (laughs) you do need to communicate that way. Yeah, exactly. So how does this work for privacy? If all of these medical records are going to be on this database, how do we protect ourselves as patients? How do we protect our privacy? What about for the super paranoid question of what if insurance companies look at this and then they don't want to cover me or my child because they saw these medical records? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's so important. And so that's why it's really important that you always join platforms that have you as the guardian of your own data. So, you know, first of all, you have to look at the technology and the servers and things like that. So it's citizen, everything is HIPAA compliant, it's GDPR compliant, all of your data is stored securely, and there is an audit trail. So that's really important. But the next thing is that you, you know, as you go through the consent, you you own all of those raw medical records, and they cannot be shared. So your identifiable information cannot be shared with anyone unless you choose to share it. So if you want to share your records with an insurance provider, you can do that, but Citizen could never do that. All we can do, if you consent again, and you could choose not to consent, but if you do, we can we can share your non-identifiable aggregated data, which means that everybody who is in your cohort who has the same disease, their aggregated information on, you can imagine like an Excel file, right? We can share that information with researchers who are trying to find a cure for, for your disease. And so it's a little different and the security is really important because all of us want our own kids' records to be secure. We don't want their names to be shown. We don't know how that's going to affect them in the future. At the same time, we do want their data to be used to help find a cure for them, right? So it's very the security is really important. Yeah. Medical records are definitely in the dark ages. So you're saying that when Citizen goes and gets all this stuff, they're going to be taking all of these medical codes. I requested for its medical records at one point, and a lot of it was just a bunch of, I mean... It was a little over my head in a lot of ways. And quite frankly, when I did go back and research the codes, they didn't even really match up with Ford's stuff. So a lot of them were wrong. Yeah. 
No, exactly. I mean, it's a, it's really fascinating, right? So that is when, when we look at clinical trials right now, there's two types of information, right? There's information that is given by a clinician and there's information that's given by a patient. So patient reported outcomes, surveys. And for rare diseases, I do think the FDA is kind of changing their stance a little bit and is accepting more patient reported outcomes. But for the main part, um, for the majority, they still want the, the, you know, the clinical re record is still the gold standard. And what be, and, and it's really, I mean, you can understand their point of view, right? Clinicians are trained in a specific way of how they ask questions, how they put data down. So that's something that the FDA can take then and use that data in a clinical trial. And so that's why getting these medical records and finding, you know, creating the right codes and then connecting the codes with the data within those medical records is really important. And it's a massively complicated and laborious task. And for citizen, at least that's, that has been the core focus. Wow, that's intense. Yeah, I think the patient-driven data has become super valuable as, you know, part of the treatment, part of the research, part of the diagnosis even. They're starting to listen and, you know, parents like you and advocate groups are pushing this so hard because they are. They are the best ones to deliver a lot of this information. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I heard of a clinical trial. I mean, it's really funny that used pooping as an endpoint. Okay. <laughs> and it's hysterical and you can't find that in the medical records. So they, that was literally all patient reported well, parent reported information, but something like that is a really good clinical endpoint. Like did you poop? Did you not poop? Right. And so patient reported outcomes are also really important. And all of these, like the way to think about it is like, what are the endpoints that we're going to be able to measure? So when we develop a drug, we know that, you know, there's a certain endpoint, a symptom that has improved. And that, that's really what this is about. So getting a baseline. A baseline. Exactly. That kind of reminds me of Dr. Fagenbaum's situation when he had all these blood moles and nobody was connecting the blood moles to anything because nobody else with Castleman had them. And ultimately it became the catalyst for how he kind of treated his disease. That is such a good example. And I mean, his book was just mind blowing. That is the kind of stuff that makes me crazy. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> totally. I mean, I've heard so many stories about that where you have all these really smart clinicians, like seeing your child and you're going everywhere. And then, but it's like this simple connection that's missed. And if you could figure it out, you could like, you know, completely change the course of your child's life. It's just, what are we missing? I mean, I always think about that. Yeah. So what does this mean for the doctors, the, the doctors that we're seeing day to day, our neurologists, our pulmonologists, do they look at it as it's actually going to help them? Or is this going to make more work for them? Or are they kind of uneasy about letting all of this kind of unleash? So we haven't received any negative feedback from clinicians. And I think one reason is that it's easier for them, right? There's nothing extra they have to do. We're literally taking medical records and just taking information from those records and then normalizing them throughout the world. So all children with this disease around the world, we normalize the data. And so I think for clinicians, they're just finding this as a really easy way to look at data on a specific disease group you know, in a scaled way. And also, if you think about it, like when you go see a, a clinician for a second opinion, it's actually a huge pain for that clinician, right? Because they always um, request your medical records. They have to sift through the entire medical record themselves. Now, a clinician 
clinician, like we create these cards, what we call them. So in oncology, you know, you have a cancer card and neurology, it's a neuro card. And we literally list out all of the critical elements and there's full data provenance. So back to the original medical record. So you can imagine a clinician receiving this information before your visit, quickly being able to scan and getting a really good sense of what, you know, your child is facing. And if they want to dig into any um, element, they could do that. They could double click on the page and go into the medical document at that at that place. So we're actually saving clinicians a ton of time. And, and that's really um, a big, it's a big saving for clinicians. Yeah, that's very cool. It's informing them. And it's also breaking down the barriers of letting them get information and share information. Exactly. Yeah, that's very cool. And I think even just in the beginning, right, for a newly diagnosed family, like if I could have been told one thing other than like this horrible fact that you found on Google, that would have been helpful to me as a parent to be able to move forward in a direction other than just doom and gloom for a while. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, when I got Amara's diagnosis, I will never, ever, ever forget the first thing that I read on the NIH website, that first sentence, right, that basically said she's never going to walk or talk and she's going to be intellectually yes. um, disabled. I mean, I'll never forget what that felt like. And it's actually only recently that I even realized that like 30% of our kids actually do walk. And, and that's just what we know from basic data we've been able to find. So I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, seriously. So how can we as parents and caregivers and just anyone in the rare disease community in general, how can we help this this platform? How can we help it move forward? How can we help share it? Do we all should we all just sign up? That's such a good question because it is a joint effort. So let's take our, you know, our favorite person, Mike, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mike Raglia from Syngap One. So Syngap, we are going to be onboarding their patients actually next week. Wow. And what's been amazing is that Mike has been such a great partner with looking at what we're collecting, the elements we're collecting, giving us feedback, connecting us with the clinicians that really understand Syngap having us be able to speak to them. They're going to be the first ones who take a look at the data and provide additional feedback. So it is a partnership. You know, we're in it to help find a cure, to be, you know, joint hand in hand um, with you to find a cure. And so that partnership is really important. Um, having good advocacy groups is so critical. And, you know, within the rare disease community, there's so many advocacy groups and you have small diseases and you'll have multiple advocacy groups. And I, I think what's really important is when you think about patient communities and patient data, that's when advocacy groups really need to come together. When it comes to patient registries and natural history studies, they have to be a joint effort. So we're hoping to work with various advocacy groups to do that, um, to bring in your patients. But it is you know, I mean, as an advocacy group leader myself, it's so important to kind of build that community um, and for citizen to be able to partner with really good advocacy groups who can get the patients excited and help them and we can onboard them and then provide this value. Yes. Well, and I think, too, just uh, finding groups like yours and like Syngaps helps to inspire parents, right? When they see what you're doing and they see these patient stories and they see all the movement that you're doing, I think it can inspire the smaller groups that maybe aren't connecting very well. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, the reason I stumbled across Citizen was we had created a patient registry and then I was looking for platforms to build a natural history study. And, and that's really how I stumbled upon Citizen. It's so important for all of our groups to realize 
that that is what we need to focus on. Like if you do nothing else and you just focus on building an amazing natural history study, you will, you know, do things like in leaps and bounds because a pharmaceutical company can never do this. They can never contact patients. They cannot, you know, pull patients together and aggregate data. They, they can't do that, but we as patient advocates can do that. And it's so important that we take that initiative and realize that it's our responsibility to understand our disorder. Yes. And it's our data. And it's our data. It's our, you know, it's ours. And so any platform that doesn't let you own that is a, it's a big, a big no-no. Yeah. So when you say natural history studies, you're talking about things like Simmons Searchlight. You're talking about patients inputting their data, their genetic results or whatnot into a program where some doctors and clinicians can look at it, but you know, on a bigger scale. It's a little different because a natural history study is really clinician entered data. Okay. And then you can supplement it with some patient reported outcomes, but it's that clinical data that's so important. So right now, the way that natural history studies are conducted is you'll have a few academic centers running a natural history study. Patients will have to drive in, fly in mm, every yeah. three to six months, and then those doctors collect information. And what we realized is most of our kids are going to the doctor every three to six months anyways, right? Because we can't get therapy services unless we go to the doctor. And it's the exact same questions that are being asked. So we don't need to do this. And the problem with the traditional natural history studies is number one, it's super expensive. Who's going to fund that, right? So either you'll get like an academic center funding it, or you'll get a pharmaceutical company funding it. And the, the issue there is then that you don't really own that data. They're going to decide who they share it with. Um, they will have their own intentions, et cetera. And if you do decide as an advocacy group, we're going to fund that, it's going to cost you millions and millions of dollars for like 40 patients, right? Which is not something that most of our advocacy groups can fund. And even when we do, you know, what's the point of just getting data on 40 patients? Yeah. So the real beauty of a digital natural history study is that we can collect medical records from anywhere in the world. So number one, you get a global natural history study, which is so important in our patient populations, right? That we get as many people as possible and that patients don't have to go to drive to a center or fly to a center with like medically fragile children, yes. right? Huge. It's got to be easier. Yeah. It's like ridiculous. So it has to be easier. And then the access of that, we should be able to share it with every pharmaceutical company that wants to look into our disease. It shouldn't be just, we share it with one. And then if there's another pharma company, we got to redo the whole thing. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So Yes, I love that. I'm actually kind of bummed there was a natural history study that was here at UW that Ford ha was uh, prepped to go to because he couldn't go until he was four and they just closed it down due to like, yeah, I'm sure cost and everything because they've been flying families in and, you know, what, whatever. I mean and now it's over. It's okay. There'll be digital ones. And I, and I do think that the future is digital. I, I think this, you know, the in-person is a good way to supplement it. So if there are specific kids you need to bring in to do additional testing, that could be possible. But one thing we've learned in COVID, because studies have continued. And so let's take like a walk, a stress walk test, right? I, I've even heard from um, pharma CEOs that what they're doing is like, they just send equipment to patients, they video camera them, and the patients do the, the walk test. So and, and then all of a sudden they're like, wow, this is so much more cost effective. And it's actually better because now by videotaping them, we can get multiple experts to look at it versus when they fly into a center, there's just 
the opinion of one expert. You know, it's like technology is actually enabling. There's so many things that we can do that you don't need to have a patient come in person to do. Yes, it's very cool and especially important for the immunocompromised, like you said. Yep. Yeah. The innovation of digitizing these medical records is amazing and it has so much potential, like you said, and it's going to make treatments more efficient. It's going to make them more accurate. And I think it's going to come. I mean, it's coming fast. Right. And I think it's going to be pushed even faster because of COVID, like you said. Yep, exactly. And I do also love the fact that pharmaceutical companies, healthcare companies, biotech companies can also kind of put their hands in the bag and kind of sift through maybe whatever idea they want to look at from then on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what we all of us want is, hey, biotech company, you have a bunch of technologies you've designed. Take a look at our disease group, right? Could it work? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really what we want to get to. Yeah. Giving patients access to their data is only going to unleash more crusaders like you and me because I want to be and a like crusader. You. Exactly. You are a crusader. You are. I mean, this podcast is amazing. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm learning a lot and it's really cool. So, Nasha, tell me anything that I have missed or that parents and patients need to know about Citizen. You know, th the main takeaways are you as a patient have a strong voice and you your data can go really far. And for advocacy group leaders, it is your job, it is really your responsibility to gather your patients and create these digital natural history studies. It's really important for the community that you provide the community with data that helps them make better day-to-day -day decisions and that you're providing academic researchers and pharmaceutical companies access to data that helps your disease get on their radar and ensures that you're using data to help drive, um, you know, different types of therapies for for your children. So that that's really my, my takeaway is that as an advocacy group leader, you have to take that initiative um, on your shoulders. And there's many ways that it could be done. Um, I'm obviously a, a huge fan of Citizen. I, you know, decided to join the company and I'm, I'm working with other rare communities now and um, specifically in within neurology first and then we're moving on to other um, other areas. So it's, it's something I'm very passionate about, but it's just really important for any advocacy group leader to think about this and then you as a patient to contact your advocacy group and ask them, you know, are we building a natural history study? How are we building it? Have you thought of doing it digitally? So that that's something that is a, a huge takeaway. Yes, so cool. Thank you so much. And you can find Nasha at foxg1.org, correct? Yes, so you can find me at Nasha at Citizen, and it's Citizen with two eyes, um, .com or Nasha at foxg1research.org. Awesome, one to watch. Thank you so much for sharing this with me today. I'm gonna go fill it out this afternoon and get CT and NB1 on your radar. Thank you so much and um, look forward to helping your disease group. But thank you so much for creating this podcast, Effie. It's just a huge thing for our whole community and for having me on it. Yes, my pleasure. And thank you so much for saying that. I appreciate it, Nasha. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.